Okay, so uh, Brian asked me to teach this topic, um, and uh, and so we're going to get started on this. It's it's a little long. It can be it can be long. I don't have everything that I would have taught. This is a topic that I've taught in the Bible Institute, uh, not at uh, probably more depth at that in those classes than here because um, they need to go deeper in things. But this is uh, what I call a study on of what the word is, and I'll explain this word later, but the word apologetics, and I just call this study a reasonable dialogue or a reasonable defense uh, of the Christian faith. And um, I'll explain more about all of what that means uh, as we go forward. Uh, but uh, if you have your Bibles, and, and if you have your handout, there's, I, most of the verses that I'll mention are, are listed on the handout at some point in some place. But Acts chapter 17, verse 2, we're going to start there just to kind of get a, get get going with this with this um, idea of an apologetic. Paul uh, was uh, on his missionary journey, and uh, he was describing some things. And it says, as Paul, uh, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And that's an interesting word, and that's the word we're going to kind of key on really on this whole topic of of apologetics is the idea of reasoning. That's why I title it a reasonable dialogue or a reasonable uh, discussion. Um, Paul was, uh, you know, he went into the synagogue to uh, preach and to reason with them out of, out of the scriptures about what the truth is, about uh, what, why they're even in the synagogue and what's going on and what the Old Testament was talking about. And in verse 3, if you have your Bible open, you'll see verse 3 says, he opened and alleged that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So he's reasoning that, verse 3. He's making a, he's making a reasonable statement uh, in his teaching in the synagogue that Christ uh, needed to suffer, according to the Scriptures. Uh, he even wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, that Christ... Um, died according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. And that's what he's telling them in chapter 15 at the synagogue. He opened and alleged that Christ had needed to suffer, and he did rise again from the, from the dead. And this Christ, or this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the risen Savior of the, of the world. And so he led that. And so, so let me just kind of talk to you. And this, there's some blanks. I think most of the, hand, most of the PowerPoint... If the if the text is in red, that's that's what goes in your blank. Hopefully that'll work. Not these red ones that are up there right now. That's just a uh, title. So anyway, let me just talk about reasoning. The word reasoning. Uh, when you think about reasoning, and especially what Paul says or what it says of Paul in, in Acts chapter seventeen, the word reason in this verse it comes from the Greek word, uh, and I'm not a Greek uh, speaker, but I pronounce it dialogame. Dialogue that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Dialogue. And so we get the English word dialogue from that same dialogue Greek word that gives us the word that was translated as reason in this verse, Acts chapter 17, verse 2. So what that, if you read it this way, Acts 17, 2, Paul, as his, as his manner, went in with them after th- and, th- with th- and three Sabbath days dialogued with them out of the Scripture. He dialogue. He had a conversation and put them out of the scripture. So to to have re- to reason 
is to offer, this means to offer a reason, is to enter into a dialogue with somebody. So uh, you go knocking on the door uh, next time we have uh, uh, taken into the streets to invite people to come to church. And then you knock on the door and, and uh, you, you actually, what you're actually wanting to do besides invite them, you would like to enter into a dialogue, what? To reason with them about what? About Christ. That's what Paul did. That's, what, that's really what evangelism is actually all about. It is about having a dialogue with people. Uh, and so what goes in your blank there is the word dialogue. And, um, and so reason equals dialogue. And so to reason with somebody is to e- engage in an appropriate dialogue. And I emphasize the word appropriate, dialogue, um, because there's a lot of kind of things that can be a dialogue. Right when we get into a conversation with somebody, we can have a discussion, we can have a debate, we can have a argument, we can just give an answer to the questions that somebody asks. Well, how do you know that God is real? Well, let me tell you how I know God is real and give an answer to that. You can exhort. So there's different ways to have a dialogue. So Christians, Christians should engage with others in a dialogue for the purpose of convincing them of the truth. When you think about what, I mean, why are you knocking on their door with the hopes of inviting them to church in a park and then at the same time engaging them in a short five-minute, 15-minute, whatever they're willing to give you time to have a dialogue about ultimately what is the truth? The dialogue equals the truth. If you were looking over in Acts chapter 24 and verse 25, um, this is what Paul was, Paul dialogued actually with Felix. Remember Felix? In Acts chapter 24, verse 25. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way, get away from me, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for you. And so he was, Paul was having a dialogue with, the, with, uh, with Felix, and Felix, uh, he trembled and he decided, I don't want this anymore because your, your truth is getting too close to my sin. That's basically what was wrong with Felix. He did the same thing with King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28. Then Agrippa said to him, in fact, this is an interesting way where Agrippa backs everything down. In Acts chapter 26, verse 28. Here we go. King Agrippa, believeth thou the prophets? This is Paul asking. He's having a reasonable dialogue. I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but all that hear me this day would both almost and altogether such as I am accept these bonds. He basically said, I want everybody to be saved. I want everybody to believe. So that's the dialogue that Paul was having. Um, so uh, our task as believers, our responsibility as believers, is to display and discuss the reasonableness of truth. The reasonableness... The reasonableness Sorry if I can't talk, but my tongue's not working right. The reasonableness of truth of, the, of Christianity in such a way as to persuade others of the truth. 
I'm not talking about getting them saved. I'm just talking about convincing them what the truth is. And we'll talk about truth uh, before, hopefully before the night is over tonight. Um, why do we believe anything? What is, well, actually, next week we'll get into truth, but today we're going to get into why we believe anything. Okay, so once we have done that, then what, what should happen is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness. And so conviction, if you, if you look at that, that cascading line of t- text there, it says reasoning is dialogue, dialogue is convincing of truth, convincing of truth uh, convicts, of the, convicts of the Holy Spirit to salvation. It's not us that leads to salvation, it's the Holy Spirit that leads people to salvation. But when we give the truth, when we're sharing the truth, when we're reasoning with people, people will be more ready to listen to what the truth is. I was really hoping that would be a brighter against a black background, but I guess that's not. Can you read that? No. That's terrible. I'll change next week. Um, Turn the lights off. Not all of them, just the ones on the screen. That help? Well, I'm closer. I can read it. Okay, hopefully that helps. What's that? You turn those off too? Or just down some? No, not those. They don't need to see me. There you go. How's that? That help? Okay. All right, well, good. Okay, so let me define a few things really quickly here, both... um, you're all familiar with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but turn to that one for just a moment. 1 Peter 3, 15, because Paul reasoned uh, with the, with the uh, people in the synagogue, and he reasoned with Agrippa, and he reasoned with uh, Felix. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we have a verse that's very important uh, for the Christian believer. That verse says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to do what? To give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. And one more verse we need to look at. We'll kind of tie all this stuff together. And that is um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. Philippians chapter 1, verse 17 says, But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. And so uh, both Peter and Paul talk about defending and, and giving a reason. Uh, and so let me just show you some things here. Let me go here. So we got these, got these two verses. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear in Philippians 1.17, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So those, those, that right there, that, that part of, the, of Peter's verse, give an answer, and that part of Paul's verse, the defense, that's really where we're going with this whole study is about giving an answer in defense. So Paul says to be ready to give an answer. So I'm hoping that this will show up well for you because I can't change it at this moment. But anyway, let me... Let me see what we got here. So um, it, to be ready to give an answer, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, that word, that expression, give an answer, that is where we get the word 
apologia. That is the word that we get that equates to the word that I'm using for the title of the study is apologetics. It's the word apologia, and Peter instructs his readers to always, meaning literally always, continually, be ready to give an answer. I think that's one of your blanks on your notes there as well. Uh, to give an answer for why you are a Christian, why you're a believer in Christ. And we're not talking about leading people to save. We're just saying, well, why do, somebody asked you, why do you believe what you believe? Well, this is why I believe it. Because, and then you give a reason, give a reasoned list. And, and so uh, the Greek word apologia provides a textual foundation for what is called apologetics. And, and I will say, and there's a little blank, there's a little square in the middle of your page. Apologetics is not, is not an apology. Like, I'm sorry for being a believer. That's not what we're talking about. Don't ever be sorry for being a believer. Because that's not what this is about. We're not about being sorry. We're about being reasonable and defending our belief system. Everybody in the world, in case you've ever thought about it this way, but everybody defends what they believe. Everybody defends what they believe, even if what they believe is different than what you believe. They will defend it because it's theirs. And your defense is what you believe. And so, so anyway, the point is, uh, that word uh, apologia means a speech of defense to give a reply. It's the act of making a defense. And if you really want to know, it's Strong's number 627, which if you really want to get into it and look at that, that tells you where, uh, what, how to define that word. So um, there's more to these verses, 1 Peter 3.15 and uh, Philippians 1.17, there's more to these verses than just being able to explain your salvation testimony. We're not talking about explaining your salvation testimony even. I mean, when somebody says, how did you get saved? That's one thing. But if somebody says, well, what do you, why do you believe that? Well, because he saved me. That's not a defense. That's not explaining. That's not giving an answer either. I mean, it's an answer, but it's not what this is about. And so the challenges that come to the, at the Christian faith need to be answered. Peter tells us to be ready to answer those challenges. Apologia, like I said, is not an apology. It's a defense. It's an explanation. It's a, a, a reasoned statement about why you believe that. So the word apologia, uh, Peter instructs his readers to always, literally continue to be ready to give an answer. And that Greek word apologia provides the textual foundation. Okay, so apologetics, as I said, I'm going to stress it one more time. Apologetics is not apologizing for the Christian faith. Should never apologize for, for the Christian faith. It it does describe the discipline of providing logical answers. Um, it provides logical uh, answers, um, or arguments, and reasons for why the Christian belief system should be considered not just true, but truth as well. And there's there's a so things can be true. But not everything that is true is truth. And we'll talk about that when we get to that section on truth. So we should be able to supply a valid reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and we also need to be able to do it in a respectful manner to our audience. Because we're not talking about beating people up with the truth. We're not talking about arguing and, def and getting into a debate, uh, even though you can use a debate in a reasoned way, and there's sometimes valid to, to do a debate. But we're not debating people, and we're not trying to pound them with what we believe to be the truth. 
So let me define apologetics um, a little bit here. Apologetics is the branch of Christian theology that seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. And what it does is it serves as an expression of the, of the loving God with all of our heart, mind, and soul to do certain things. Uh, what, the, what, what this does is it shows unbelievers the truth of the Christian faith, that it is a valid consideration. So think about this. When you're, when you're defending, when you're explaining Christianity to an unbeliever, to a lost person, they already have their, their what some people would call their worldview. They already have their, their belief system about what is right, what is wrong, what is this, what is that, where did this come from, how did we get the things that we have, where did all that stuff come from? And now, now you're saying to them, okay, well, let me show un, you unbeliever the truth of the Christian faith so you can compare your belief system with my belief system and see which one actually holds up to truth. That's what apologetics is about. So to, it also confirms the faith to believers. You know, there's a lot of believers, they will, when you, especially young believers that just gotten saved, may not be able to answer the question, show me, how do you know that there really is a God? How do you know the Bible is accurate? You know, all those challenging type of questions. And so apologetics and all that it encompasses helps to confirm your faith to you. I like to use the expression, and a lot of times uh, Christians are attacked and say, you have blind faith. Have you ever heard that attack of Christianity? You have blind faith? Well, by the time you get done with this series, you're not going to have blind faith anymore. You're going to have evidential faith. Evidential faith. You have evidence for your faith, and all you're doing is sharing your evidence for your faith. We'll get to all of that later on. This is still just an introduction. Um. So it's going to show, it's going to confirm the faith to believers. It's going to reveal the connection between Christian doctrine and other truths, other truths that are out there in, in the world. There is a push, I will say this, there is a push even among the Christian uh, leadership sometimes, not in this church, but in other churches, uh, that, that, that push against apologetics. And some would argue against apologetics, claiming that nobody gets saved through arguments. I would say that's a very true statement. Nobody gets saved by arguing with them. I, we don't need to argue with people. We just need to present the truth, let the Holy Spirit convict them, and they'll get saved if the Holy Spirit convicts them enough. You know how Paul got saved, right? Paul got saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Why? Because he was convicted. He didn't get, he didn't get uh, saved because people were, were telling him that he had a false belief system. He got saved because Christ convicted him. That's what he talked about when he can't kick against the pricks. So, okay, so anyway, uh, the, the, some will claim that people are not interested in what is true rather than what works for them. Yeah, okay, well, that may be true, but this works. <laughs> this, the truth of Christianity actually does work. Uh, some, people will, some, some people will argue that about against apologetics by claiming that they don't want an answer. They want to see Christianity lived out which is true. They do want to see Christianity lived up, but eventually they're going to ask. I mean, you can't witness somebody. You can't talk about the Bible with, the, with anybody for very long before you get asked a question. Has everybody been asked a question about their faith by somebody who is a non-believer? That's an apologetic conversation you just entered into. However you answered it, say, well, I don't know how God did it. Okay, well, that's honest. You don't know. Maybe you don't know, but learn it. And so the next time you get asked that question, you can be able to answer that. So there's three vital areas where apologetics must, and I think the, 
I don't have this. This will be really the fourth one. But three areas where apologetics must impact society. We have to have an impact. You as a Christian must have an impact on society. First, apologetics is, is um, I think I'm behind. Where am I at here? Here we go. Okay, so we need to impact society. Western culture is deeply post-Christian. You didn't know that, did you? Western culture is deeply post-Christian. It's against Christ. It's, they have, they've gone the way, and, and now they've left the church. They've gone back into the world. They've fallen away. They, it's post-Christian. So the Western culture, I mean, just look at what's going on in our world today in the United States. You can see they aren't Christian. There's, there's a lot of things that happen in the world, in the United States even today, are not Christian-based truths. So Western culture is deeply post-Christian, and, the, and that means that Christians must learn to see beyond their immediate evangelistic contact to grasp a wider picture of Western thought and culture. You need to understand why people are thinking the way they're thinking. Because they don't have an answer for Christ, so they make up an answer that fits their thinking, and that's their answer now. Western culture is saturated with enlightenment, which opened the door to secularism uh, with the fundamental basis of free thought and the pursuit of knowledge by reason alone. Yeah, we're talking about reasoning, but they use reason alone instead of using the, the Word of God. The problem is most, of, most Western culture does not consider theological knowledge to even be possible. So if, you, if you know, you've probably seen movies on TV like God's Not Dead, those kind of things, they challenge the students at the, in, in the classroom. Um because they don't consider theological truth to even be a dis- worth discussion. But you do. You do. And so you need to be able to present that. What's important is that the gospel is never heard in isolation of culture in which a person lives. It's When you talk to somebody about anything about the Bible or about Christ or Christianity or anything, they're going to they're gonna compare what you're saying to what's going on in, in culture today and compare it. And we need to be able to have an answer to what's going on. A person who's raised in a Christian culture is more apt to accept the gospel than one that is raised in a secular culture. And, uh, they may be encouraged to, to believe in fairies and leprechauns and so on, but God himself, um, to them, is, he's just the same as a leprechaun or a fairy. So we have to get past all those kind of things, and that's what, the, that's what apologetics is about. Um, I will say Europe has already fallen this way, and the United States is pursuing the same path. It's falling away very quickly. So for this reason, it's for this reason that Christians, to impact culture, that Christians who pass off on apologetics with short-sighted arguments fail to realize that the broader task of apologetics is to help create and sustain a cultural environment in which the gospel can be heard as an intellectually viable option for people who think. Now, that's a big mouthful of there. What am I trying to say in, the, in that statement? What I'm trying to say is you need to be able to give people a reason to th- rethink their belief system, to reconsider their belief system. Some people say, well, uh, you know, man was just, just shows up one day on the, on the planet that showed up some years ago. Okay, so let's talk about how it got here. And if you present the, 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 the lesson on, on, or the proof on creation, and now they have something, well, let me think about that. So now you've impacted the way they think. And what we want to do is we want, 
we want to give people a viable option to the way they think. That's what apologetics is about. That's what having this kind of conversation is about. It's not about trying to prove anything. You just say, hey, just consider this. Consider that God created. Consider that, and we'll get into the whole creation thing in a few weeks, but just consider it. Because that's what you're trying to do, get them to think and get them to realize that there's something, there's another option other than just evolution. There's another option other than just miraculous, I don't know if you can call it miraculous if it's by itself on its own creation. Anyway, so to impact society. Secondly, apologetics is to strengthen the believers. I mentioned that already. But Christianity, uh, Christian worship tends to focus on emotional intimacy with God, but do not provide substantial relationship with the God of all creation. The risk for youth today in in most churches that they cannot give substantive answers is that the youth may lose their faith that had been there only shored up by the entertainment and devotional Bible studies that they're getting. One of the things that we try to do in this church is not just have emotional uh, uh, Bible studies. We try to have doctrinal Bible studies, teaching the actual Bible. What does the Bible say? Pastors and leaders today must be trained in apologetics and familiar with the contemporary science, as well as be engaged intellectually with our culture to shepherd among the wolves. You've got to be able to do that. And so whether it's the science, physics, philosophy, or Bible criticism, if we avoid these topics, we will not be able to deal with the well-read neighbor next door. Because a lot of times people who, who have taken the choice and say, I'm going to be an atheist, they're not, well, I shouldn't say it this way, they're not ignorant. They've researched it. They've studied it. They've, they've, they've intellectually come to their conclusion. There is no God. And now we have to be able to have an answer to them. Hey, why don't you consider this in a different light? Uh, and so we're trying to strengthen the believers so that you can have the truth in your own self. So they lack, Christians even, lack a realization of the truth and confidence and lose out on the fact of their faith being both logical and fitting of the facts of experience and the lack the realization of the... And, and lack the realization of the knowledge of the stability of knowing their faith is objectively true. Too many Christians, especially younger Christians, they struggle because they don't know how to give the answer because they haven't been taught how to give the answer. They don't know what the answer actually is. And so they struggle, and so they are easily swayed away from Christianity and into the world again. Not just, we, we pick on the young people, but it's, it happens to even adults. It happens to adults as well. Okay, so the third thing that apologetics says we're talking about a definition is to evangelize the lost. So that's where you would think that this would be mostly, but it actually is impacting society and culture and strengthening your, the believers, but it also impacts or evangelizes the lost. There's far too many who think that apologetics not, is not useful in evangelizing the lost. Unfortunately, they're wrong. I bring all this up because I've, I've, had, I've con- been confronted by, by other pastors who say apologetics is a waste of time. You don't need to have apologetics. Just open up the Bible. I don't disagree with that, but you know, when I was got, before I got saved, you couldn't open up the Bible to me. Because to me, there was just a book that was written by a bunch of men who made a bunch of mistakes, and it didn't matter to me. 
the book, don't use that. And they didn't have another answer for me. So it took me a lot, a lot longer to get my, myself worked out. Um, so just think about who has used apologetics in the scriptures. I already talked about Acts chapter 17 where Paul reasoned with the lost. In Acts chapter 19, he disputed for three months on the things concerning the kingdom of God. And I don't have these quoted and I don't have them on the screen, but Acts chapter 19, verse 8. He disputed for three months of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He talked about the doctrine of the kingdom of God for three months. You know, you think sometimes we go long on, on stuff that we teach here. You know, Matt, three, three months on the kingdom of God. That's a pretty good Bible study. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 32, Peter continually referred to the prophecies of the resurrection and the Messiah in preaching at, at, at uh, Pentecost. And so he was, he was doing that. He was a, an apologetic type of message. In Acts chapter 14, verse 17, the message there included references to evidence of the existence of a creator. So that's just four, three or four places in the Bible where an apologetic type of conversation was taking place. The general problem is often the often struggle that the believer has with answering challenging questions from the lost. So it is a problem, and that's why I'm teaching. That's why I want to go through this. I'm not going to be able to answer all of your challenging questions or the questions you've been challenged with, but I want to give you something to start with. If you've never plunged into this kind of a conversation before or study, it'll give you a chance to to have something to look at. And I've got some books that I would recommend. In fact, in the, um, in the resource center, there's going to be several books that I've told them they need to get. So you can, if you want to dive into some books, these, I've got some good books that I've recommended. Anyway, let me go on. Um, there's valid reasons to make the effort to have an answer for those who ask. Because God cares for every soul. God cares for every soul, and he needs you sometimes to answer the question, that that lost soul has about what is truth or what is right or what is wrong. Or why, do, why, do that, why does that kind of stuff go on in our world today if the Bible is real? How do you answer that question? You need to be able to. So when apologetics is persuasively uh, presented and sensitive, sensitively com- combined with the gospel and a personal testimony, then the Holy Spirit condescends to use all of that you just did to bring people to himself. John chapter 12, verse 32 says, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will, will draw all men unto me. I And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Jesus Christ said, lift me up. That's a, that, answering those conversational questions is a time when you can lift up Christ. But apologetics has a long history. And I'm going to kind of go through these kind of quick because it's not necessarily important to us, but I just want you to know that, it, that Christianity has been doing this for a long time. The earliest apologists um, started um, in the early 2nd and 3rd century. The challenge faced during that time is the same challenge that we're faced with today. Um, the history, need, the, the church needs a, needed a response. Judaism, Gnosticism, Paganism, Hellenistic culture, philosophy all opposed the early church, and apologists defined or defended Christianity against these attacks, and they sought to gain converts to the faith by, by discussing and arguing for the superiority of the Christian position. So the first guy is Justin Martyr. Um, 
see, where is he? Yeah, there it is. Um, he used logic and reason in offering a defense of Christianity. He was called the defender of true philosophy. He has a quote that he says, I hope you can read that. But he says, I fell in love with the prophets and these men who had loved Christ. I reflected on all their words and found this philosophy alone was true and profitable. This philosophy of Christianity. And uh, so here's some early, early names as well. Uh, so you can't, I hope you can read those. But like I, said, I just want to mention these people. You may have heard these names. Augustine in the 4th century. Anselm, the Bishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Martin Luther in the 15th century, and Blaise Pascal, if you know anything about uh, math, you may know his name, Blaise Pascal in the 17th century. In each period, in each period since, Christian, uh, since Christian apologetics have met Christ, Christianity detractors with respect and well-formed arguments. So what they did, they kind of set a tone for us, and I just want to mention those quickly. But why do we need to talk about apologetics? So let's, let's, get, to, let's get down to some meat here. Why apologetics? Why, why is apologetics even necessary, and what value does it provide for you and for me? So let me just show you this. You probably might, okay, let me just give you this diagram. And you, I don't have the diagram in your notes, but you might want to draw it on the, on the backside. So you say, okay, let's start with a circle. Why apologetics? And then we have another circle that says um, validate Christian truth. So apologetics, and we already talked about that, validating Christian truth. Secondly, it refuses, I'm sorry, refutes error. Third, it strengthens the church. That's what we talked about, right? Strengthening Christians. And fourth, it saves the lost. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that fits this very, very well. Uh, look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, and this says this. So we'll put 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 in the middle. Okay, so all Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for four things, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So look, watch this. Okay, so why apologetics? Why validate Christian truth? Because that's where we get doctrine. What about... Uh, uh, refuting error. Well, that's where we get reproof. That's actually the word in the verse, reprove. The third thing is, is about strengthening the church. That's correction. You know, the church gets stronger when they get corrected. I know sometimes we don't like be, to be corrected, but think about this for a second. When we teach correct doctrine, aren't we all strengthened? Aren't we all uh, like-minded now? And lastly, the saving the lost, that's instruction. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is another verse that gives us a pattern for, for evangelism uh, or through, for, through, for apologetics. Um, so you have validating truth as doctrine, reproving error as reproof, strengthening the church as correction, and saving the lost as instruction. So I want to go through each one of those in a little bit more depth. Um, uh, does that chart make sense? I hope it does. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about validating truth. With doctrine, validating truth with doctrine. Doctrine, in case you didn't know, is a set of beliefs or, or teaching or principles held by a person or a group. A doctrine is a is a is a, a body of teaching. The word doctrine specifically suggests a body of religious principles as it is taught by the church. Doctrine 
is also used to refer to a principle of law, uh, a process of getting done. Military, the military has uh, a doctrine of what they call the doctrine of warfare. How are they going to do? How are they going to do a war? How are they going to execute? That's they they have a, they have a plan. That's doctrine. In some organizations, doctrine is is simply defined as that which is taught. That which is taught. The first purpose of apologetics is to validate the truth of Christianity. Apologetics employs evidences and philosophy to, to, to present evidence to validate the truth of Christianity. And it involves describing uh, it involves describing the empirical and historical evidence as well as the ph- philosophical arguments of the Christian faith. So the goal is to develop a rational and reasonable case for Christianity and refute opposing beliefs or worldviews. For example, Acts chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, we already talked about. But when Paul said uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, and Paul, as his manner was, went into them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. That's what he did. He opened and alleged. He was teaching doctrine. He was teaching the truth. Basically, he was, he was explaining what the Old Testament talked about regarding Christ. The truth matters. This is an interesting thing. The truth matters because eternity is a long time to be wrong. I mean, if, if we don't have the truth, then what's, what's going to happen? The world is going to disappear into hell. Okay, so that's just refuting, validating truth. But what about refuting, uh, refuting error? The second purpose for the, for the apologetics is to refute error in order to defend and uphold the truth. Second Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 24 and 25, which I think, again, those are also should be in your handout. Uh, and, and the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. When you're teaching somebody the truth, and then they go home and they sit down and they think, well, well that was a good answer. I never thought about that before. I, you know, and next thing you know, they're, um, they're beginning to uh, find out that they're opposing themselves. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says, holding fast, Titus says, holding fast, the faithful word as he had been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So when we're, when we're in, the, in the mode of refuting error, like, nope, sorry, the, uh, the human body is a perfect example of design. We'll talk about the design theory later on, not today, of course, but in a few weeks. In, uh, C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of C.S. Lewis, you may have read some of his books, he was, a, he was an atheist who decided, I'm going to check this stuff out because somebody was giving him an apologetic conversation one day. He said, well, let me follow up on that. And he got saved. And he said this, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Everything that's against God is bad philosophy. Everything that's against the truth is bad philosophy. Okay, so we got refuting error, refuting the atheist. So let me just talk about atheists for just a moment. Who are we? Who are we refuting? Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in our, that are popular in our culture today, both in media, academics, and politics, 
that basically slam your belief system in Christianity. So let me give you a few people's names. You may have already know this. How many of you have heard of Bill Maher? A few people. Oh, come on. Probably he's a comedian guy. He's been on HBO. He got his own show. Uh, let me just kind of give you his. Um, well, let me read his quote for this is what he says. We are a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. We're unenlightened because of religion. That's what he says. I do believe that. I think that religion stops people from thinking. I think religion is a neurological disorder. I am just embarrassed that it has been taken over by people like evangelicals, by people who do not believe in science and rationality. It is the 21st century, and I will tell you, my friend, the future does not belong to the evangelicals. The future does not belong to religion. That's who we're refuting. He's the one that has an impact on a lot of the people that are in the lost world. I think he was on, he's on HBO, he's on the Comedy Channel. See, he's an American stand-up comedian, a television host, political commentator, satirist, author, and actor. actor. He's got a lot of clout, and he has a lot to influence. When he says stuff like this on his TV shows, and everybody's sitting at home drinking their suds and saying, yeah, that's right. And now they don't believe it either, and that's who you're refuting. Bill Maher, before his current role as HBO's host of Real Time with Bill Maher, he hosted a similar late-night show called Politically Incorrect, originally on Comedy Channel, and people always get their news from the Comedy Channel. Uh, he supports the legalization of marijuana, same-sex marriage. He serves on the board of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and is advisory board member of Project Reason. In 2005, he ranked at number 38 on the Comedy Central's 100 Greatest Stand-Up Comedians of All Times. That's the guy that's, he has more, he had more people listening to him than me. There's like, what, 30 people in here? He's, he's got thousands on his TV shows listening to him. There's another guy we're, we're trying to refute. This guy's, I don't think he's around anymore, but Richard Dawkins. This is what he says. Mock them, ridicule them. He's talking about you. Mock them, ridicule them in public. Don't fall for the convention that we're all too polite to talk about religion. That's how he believes he should deal with you. He's an English evolutionary biologist. He is the emeritus fellow at New College, Oxford, and was the University of Oxford's professor for public understanding from 1995 until 2008. He's written several books called The Selfish Gene, The Blind Watchmaker, and his greater work was called The God Delusion. So he, if you believe in God, you're delusional, according to his book. Another uh, refuting that we're trying to refute is the actually the uh, the the American Atheist Association, and this is on their website. I found it on their website. It says atheism may be defined as the mental attitude which unreservedly obsec- accepts the supremacy of reason and the aims that establish in a lifestyle and ethical outlook verifiable by experience and scientific method, independent of all arbitrary assumption of authority and creeds. Basically, an, author- an an atheist is this. An atheist accepts that heaven is something for which we should work now here on earth to make happen. For all men to come together to enjoy, we've got to make heaven work here. An atheist accepts that he cannot not get any help through prayer, but that he must find in himself the inner con- conviction and strength to meet life, to grapple with it, and to subdue it, and to enjoy it. To beat up on life and enjoy it. That's an atheist. An atheist accepts that the only that only in a knowledge of himself and a knowledge of his fellow man can he find understanding that will help lead to a life of fulfillment. 
That's an atheist. That's who we're. That's who we're refuting when we say we're going to refute uh, with this. With this. Okay. So let me go on because we need. We need to be strong. So everybody's like depressed right now after listening to that. So let me strengthen you up here a little bit with correction. The third purpose of apologetics is to strengthen the church. Attacks from atheists and skeptics can leave the believers with doubts and weakened faith. If you're not strong in what you believe and why you believe it, if you don't have that evidential faith that you could lock onto, then you're going you're gonna to probably go down because the atheist has already done all these, the training and the educating that he needs, and he'll, he will back, backtrack you and spin you around and, and arm wrestle you and put you in a headlock before you even knew what happened if you're, not ready, if you're not prepared. Apologetics supplies a Christian with rational, logical, and evidential truths that undermine their trust in the Bible. I'm sorry, they undergird their trust. Give me a couple of verses here real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If you ever read that verse, you say, how do I do that? I want to do that. You pray that verse. God, how do I do that? Well, that's probably what this, is, this series is about, is to help you be prepared to do that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15, 14 and 15, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness of Bill Maher. I'm sorry, it's not in here. Um, Whereby they wait and, li- and they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, who is the head, even Christ. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We all need to have our senses exercised. To, and then the last one, uh, refuting error. Uh, let, me, let me back up here um, before I get ahead. Let me just say about refuting error is just, uh, as well to strengthen the church. The, under, the understanding needed to refute false doctrine is just as important as communicating truth to the lost. Now, let me just show you this quote here. Um, this is R.C. Sproul. He is uh, the, the, the leader of Legionnaire Ministries and the Renewing Your Mind radio show. And he says in his book, Knowing Scripture, he says this, this, this is a long quote. The Bible is addressed primarily through, though not exclusively to our understanding. That means the mind. This is difficult to communicate to modern Christians who are living in what may be most anti-intellectual period of Western civilization. Notice I did not say anti-academic, anti-technological, or anti-scholarly. I said anti-intellectual. There is a strong current of anticipation can't say that word. Antipathy, thank you. To the function of the mind in the Christian life. So basically he's saying we need to sharpen our mind. We need to strengthen our mind. The Bible is addressed to our mind. I think we looked at a quote, and I think it was Bill Maher, which says the, 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 Christianity is a non-thinking belief system. But you have to think, what is God saying in this verse? You have to think. He... R.C. Sproul goes on to address the effectiveness of the Christian. He says their Christian life is only effective at the, as the intensity of their present feelings. That's where most Christians are. They're only as strong as their current feelings are, how strong their feelings are. We don't need to have feelings. We need to have truth. 
The reason for all of this is that there's too much skepticism, cynicism, and criticism from the intellectual theologians of today, which has caused so many to disconnect from the discussion for lack of trust. I'm going to go on with that just to me for the sake of time. I don't want to run out of time. Um, okay, last one is saving the lost is instruction. The fourth purpose of apologetics is to save the lost. The desired end result is the salvation of the unbeliever. That is what we're trying to strive for, is the, un, the, the desired end of the, um, of the unbeliever. The goal is not to win the argument, but instead to persuade unbelievers. And um, let's see. They got a quote from uh, Ravi Zacharias. Many of you may remember that name. He's passed on now. The goal in most conflicts is to destroy your opponent. The goal of apolog- in apologetics is to win your opponent. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to give you this quote, Never, nearly everyone I know who has embraced Christianity in adult life has been influenced by what seemed to him to be at least a probable argument for theism. So basically, there, there is some truth out there, so they think about it and then they accept it. Lee Strobel, you may have heard this uh, this name. He wrote the book, A Case for Christ. He's got several other books out there now. But he said, essentially, I realized, that, I realized that to say in an atheist, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. Those leaps of faith were simply too big for me to take, especially in the light of the affirmative case for God's existence and Jesus' resurrection and hence his divinity. In other words, in my assessment of the Christian worldview accounted for the totality of the evidence much better than the atheistic worldview. So he was a man, if you know his history, he was a man, his wife got saved and he was not happy. Kind of like me. My wife got saved and I wasn't happy about it either until I got convinced by the truth. But that's what happened to him, and so he studied it out. He, he researched it out, and he ended up writing a book. Okay, so anyway, let me just talk about questions. Let me just gonna, you, I don't know if you've ever been here or not, but um, answers matter to everybody, and everyone is looking for answers. What do you, answers matter. I mean, even you may have a question that you don't even want to call your pastor and say, hey, pastor, how do I know that God is real? You're in my church. You should already know that. Nobody will do that. I'm, but maybe, maybe you got that question. Okay. But anyway, um, but there's a there's a website out there in, in the in uh, in the the internet called GotQuestions.org. It's an interesting site. It's interesting because in, in, it. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with everything that they answer, but listen to this: 37 million visitors to that website looking for answers. 75 million page views of questions and answers. 135,000 people indicated through the website that, they're having, that having their questions answered resulted in, resulted in them becoming a Christian. These stats are from 2012. Just to get their questions answered, what did I say? 135,000 people indicated on the website that get, but when they got their question answered, they got saved. That's an amazing thing. So the last part of saving the, saving the lost is to guide the lost. Um, using apologetics, a Christian should be able to guide skeptics and unbelievers through today's worldview maze. A Christian should be able to use facts and evidences that lead to God's truth in their salvation. 
So, okay, so that's all introduction. That's just laying out what we're trying to go to. That's, that's I, I, I know I went through a lot of that pretty quick, but I just wanted to get to that because I wanted to get to this part right here. We only got about 35 minutes left, so we're going to change slides, uh, PowerPoints, real quick. Uh, and what I want to talk about is why believe anything? Why believe anything? Christian or non-Christian, why do we believe anything? That's, this is actually lesson two. So you have lesson two's handout, uh, just flip the page. Okay, so what does it mean to believe something? I think these are valid. Before we even get into all of the proofs and the issues of creation and, and uh, design and e- evolution and fossils and all that kind of, before we get into that, I, I go on, this is still laying groundwork. So first of that was introduction. Now we're going to talk about, tonight we're going to talk about believing anything. And tomorrow or next week, we'll talk about faith, knowledge, and truth and what, how they are all bound together. And then we'll get into all of the other stuff. Okay, so what does it mean to believe? Webster's Dictionary says to accept something as true, genuine, or real. To ex- that's what uh, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, that's how it defines truth or, or belief. To accept something that is true, genuine, or real. Uh, dictionary.com also has a very similar def- definition, but to have confidence in the truth, the existence or the reliability of something, to have confidence in the truth, the existence or the reliability of something. So that would be what they say is true. Okay, but how many of you, when we talk about true, and be- I talk about the word believe, is there a verse in the Bible that you go to when you think about believe? How about John three sixteen. Let's look at that. John three sixteen. For who, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in His in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, so let's talk about that word belief in that verse right there. The the word belief. Actually, I got it. It came up in the wrong place. But anyway, the word belief is the word pisteo. Uh, and uh, the word pisteo simply means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. Further, it means to firmly be persuaded as to something of its truth. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having them afar off and were persuaded of them, they believed in the promises of God and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. So the idea, uh, come on, get up here. Here we go. The idea of placing belief on something carries with it the idea of trust and complete confidence. So where do you get your beliefs? You know, when you think about where did my belief, any belief, I mean, I'm not even talking about Bible stuff. I mean, just any belief. Like, I believe the Royals are going to win. I mean, where did you get that belief? I, I believe the Royals ain't going to make it. Where do I get that belief? So those kind of beliefs, I mean, any belief, I believe that Chevys are best. You know, just what do I believe? And why do I believe? Where do those influences come from? So what are the influences? There's three different places that we get our belief systems from. First, we get our influences from sociological type of things, culture, friends, parents, society. 
you know, we believe because the culture tells us this is what's true. So we'll, okay, I'll believe it. You know, homosexuality, abortion. Okay, it's got to be true because everybody likes it. I mean, that's where we get some of our beliefs. Some of them come from our friends. Some of them come from our parents. Well, my, my, my mom always said this is true, so I got to believe her. You know, society is the same way. Uh, another source is philosophical. Uh, psychological. Comfort, hope, identity, peace of mind. I believe this because it comforts me to believe this. I, I believe this because I hope it's true. I believe this because it gives me peace of mind to go down that path. And third is religious. Your church, your guru, your holy book, your pastor. I believe this because my pastor preaches this on Sunday. That's why I believe it. How many of you believe it because he preaches it on Sunday? Don't believe it because he preaches it on Sunday. Test him. Prove him out. Me too. All the Bible fellowship pastors, by the way. Okay, so kind of lost place where I was at. Oh, here we go. So why should you believe what you believe? Why should you believe what you believe? Something is worth believing only if it possesses three vital attributes. So for something to be worth believing, it needs to be rational. Yeah, it's already up there. Based on logic and reason. It needs to be supported by evidence. Belief without evidence is irrational. Remember I told you that we don't have a blind faith. We actually have an evidential faith. And I very strongly believe that, that we have evidence for our faith. We can back up our belief by the evidence. We have evidential faith. And so that's a very key part of why we believe anything, or why we should believe anything, because we have evidence. Without evidence, my belief would be irrational. Like, poof, the universe was created. Well, that's irrational belief, because there's no evidence to prove that. The best reason for explanation of the gathered facts, that's a, that's a reason why you should believe things. The best reason for exp- explaining the gathered facts. The process of coming to a belief gives us another word that we sometimes pull away from, which is philosophy. Because the Bible says, you know, that it warns us in Colossians about philosophy and so that. But not all philosophy is a bad thing. It, it doesn't always be bad. It's not always bad. A philosophical approach is this. It's ascertaining facts or truth and the causes of things in order to arrive at belief. So your philosophy, you, you have a, we all have a, we like to use the word worldview because it's a little bit softer than philosophy because the Bible, the Bible doesn't actually speak of the word worldview, but it does speak of philosophy. And it says, avoid philosophy, vain deceits, and so on. But at the same time, we have a philosophy of how we approach life based on what we believe about the Bible. A philosophical approach is ascertaining facts or truth that causes things to, to arrive in, in, to a, to a, in order to arrive at a belief. Blase Pascal, his, his picture there, he's the guy that gave you calculus. Thank him. You can thank him. He's the guy. He said this, People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And that's where, we're, that's where we don't want to be. Okay, so how are beliefs formed? How do we form a belief? Um, and so anything not viewed as, a plausible, as plausible will be rejected. That's the first thing. It's got to be plausible. Secondly, um, 
a plausible structure, a favorable condition forming the mind so that belief can be developed. So, so we start with something plausible, then it forms uh, the concept forms in the mind, and then ultimately it ends up real belief rests on content, or what I would call evidence. Real belief rests on content, evidence, not sincerity or fervency or desire. You can't believe things are true just because you have a fervency of desire for that. You have to have evidence for your belief. You know, you go to a court, you go to, you go to a, any kind of a trial, you got, you got the defender, you got the defense and the prosecutor, and both of them are trying to present evidence to convince you of what the truth is. And if you don't have the evidence, you don't have a trial. So that's the same thing in your own mind. So how, how does philosophy enter into belief-making? Well, the word philosophy, by the way, means love of wisdom. And philosophically, philosophy refers to the most basic beliefs, concepts, and attitudes of an individual. So every one of us have a philosophy of how we do things and how we approach things and how we see the world. Philosophy wrestles with the general and fundamental problems of humanity it wrestles with the general, general and fundamental problems of humanity such that these connected with reality, existence, knowledge, values, re- reason, mind, and language. All those tie into the fundamental problem of what humanity deals with. For example, in, Pro- in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 2, Thou shalt incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 to 10, for the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is the buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. This is all the philosophy of the Bible. This is basically breaking down in, this, in this, these four verses describing the love of the, the Lord giveth wisdom. And wisdom is a philosophy uh, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding, sound wisdom. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. C.S. Lewis says this about philosophy. Good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. And the world is full of bad philosophy. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Now there it says, uh, be, be, uh, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So we do have to be careful. There is a philosophy out there that will, just, that will corrupt our beliefs, and t- but we need to be able to respond to that philosophy with a biblical philosophy of, of the, the issues of life. One of the reasons we call life issues, life issues is because of the issues of life. Because the Bible answers the issues of life. So just think about philosophy for just a moment. What does it do? What is it, how does it help us if we're, if we're, going to, if we're not going to just throw out all the philosophies of the world? Because we can't. Because we have our own philosophy of what truth is that we're going through tonight. Philosophy helps form beliefs. It helps you think critically. You have to examine the evidence. When you examine the evidence, you're going to see where your truth, where the truth actually lies. And you need to think clearly, 
which is giving clarification. So we need to be able to think clearly. This is what Proverbs 2.2 2 and Proverbs 2.6-10 kind of talk about, this very same thing. And we need to think correctly. And then lastly, we need to think comprehensively. So the Christian philosophy helps all of us examine, clarify, argument, or argue, and systematize our beliefs in what we would call the Christian faith, the belief in Christ. It helps us to do that. But there's a relation between belief and truth that we need to talk about before we finish up here. I'm almost done. Um, The relationship between belief and truth. Beliefs are not simply to be equated with truth or reality. Beliefs are to conform to truth. Beliefs are to conform to truth. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, For this cause also we thank, thank we God without ceasing, because when, we receive, when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the world receives it. How did they receive it? But ye received it as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in you that believe. Well, what Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica Okay, so I've laid out my philosophy of truth and, and talked about Christ and talked about he's the resurrection and, and he's coming back. We're going, we're going to have, we're going to be raptured. All the stuff he's laid out in First Thessalonians. Then he says, now you, I thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, you didn't receive it as the word of men, but as it is in truth, you received it as the word of God. Because I presented that philosophy to you in the Word of God, and you received it as the Word of God, and that made that changed, and then in, and then you were able to believe. In Ephesians chapter uh, chapter one verse thirteen, it says, "In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth." So when we talk to people, when we talk about our philosophy of living through the Christian faith, we're telling people. Uh, that they can trust this, and after they trust it, they heard, they heard, after they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So once they heard the truth, received the truth, they got saved. But if we can't present the truth, then we're not going to be able to knock on a door and say, hi, I'm, I'm so-and-so from Heartland, and we'd like to invite you to the uh, to church in the park. Oh, great. Well, tell me who God is. I'll come if you can tell me who God is. I don't have an answer for you. You just come. Pastor will tell you. Don't do it that way. You need to be able to give them an answer. That's what this is about. So Ephesians, in that verse, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, gives us a progression. People hear the truth. They believe what they hear. They trust in what they have heard. And based on all the evidence and facts, they get saved. That's what Ephesians 1.13 says. I don't know if you've ever seen it that way, but that's what it says. Read it again. After you trusted, in whom after you trusted, you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after you believed, you were sealed. So they heard it, they believed it, they trusted it, and they got saved. That's all we're to do to try to help people along. We're not saving them. We're not preaching to them. We're just answering their their fundamental questions. Okay, so where are we going to go in this class or series? So 
tonight we've talked about beliefs. Next week we'll talk about um, faith and knowledge and how, how do we get to faith. What is faith? How do we get to faith? And then we're going to talk about several proofs. And, and I don't think I have them on your notes, but let me just, uh, well, they're, they're in the title, basically, on the handout. But we're going to talk about the proof of ca- from cause. How do we prove God by cause? What is, and that's, a, that's a, a tongue twister of a conversation, but we'll start with cause. Then we're going to talk about creation. How did the universe get created? We'll talk about creation, the proof of God from creation. We're going to talk about the proof of God from design. Then we'll talk about the proof of God from fine-tuning. Then we'll talk about the proof of God from evolution. You know, Charles Darwin and his theories and everything. We'll talk about the evolution. We'll talk about the proof from the age of the earth. I'm not going to pin down the age of the earth, but I am going to talk about the age of the earth uh, in reference to uh, the, this, the next proof, which is the generations of man. How long has man been on the earth? How come we only have 7 billion people on the earth? How come we don't have 75 trillion people on the earth? You ever think about that kind of a question? Where did everybody go? What happened to them? And then we're going to talk about the ones that really like people like to attack you with. Uh, lesson number eight is the proof from evil and suffering. The proof of God from evil and suffering. If God is who he says he is, why does evil exist? If God is who he says he is, why am I suffering today? Why is my children suffering? And then we'll talk about the one that's even more of an attack, and that is the proof from morality. Whose morals are we using today? My morals? God's morals? The world's morals? Culture's morals? Whose morals? We're going to talk about that. And then the last we'll wrap up. um, Last one may take a couple weeks, but... I call it Lesson 9. But anyway, it's the proof of, from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the reality, the royalty, and the resurrection. Those three things. The reality of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the royalty of Christ. Basically, the reality of Christ is, that, did Christ really exist? Because that's a challenge. Well, no, nah, he, 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 he wasn't a real man. That's just a made-up mythological story. We'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about the resurrection of Christ. Did he really die and raise again? Because Paul said, and this is really cool, Paul gives the world the one thing that they need to prove that this is all false. We'll talk about that. So there's, there is one thing in the Bible that Paul says, if you can prove this, then Christ didn't really die and he isn't really who he says he is. Paul gave them the answer and they, they, they still don't know how to do it. And then we'll finish up with his royalty. Is Christ God? And we'll talk about that. So that's kind of where we're going. So let me wrap up as a conclusion. A reminder again that apologetics is not an apology. It is a reasoned, fact-based defense of what we believe and why we believe what we believe. What, apologi- what can apologetics do? Remember the, the little pie chart there? So it, uh, it validates Christian truth. It refutes error. It strengthens the church. And it saves the lost. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God be thoroughly furnished unto all good work. That's, that's what apologetics does in those four things. And so we talked about them, but we're not going to go backwards too much over the next several weeks, but that's kind of where we've been. 
and an apologetic should offer a clear message of truth claims sent through the life of the believer. So apologetics, the, the communication, the, the giving the defense of what you believe ought to be able to be a clear message from you to, to another person of what life is all about. Too often, Christian, too often the Christian is the best reason to be against Christianity, yet every believer should reflect Christ. But too often, we're, we shoot our own self in the foot, tie our hands behind our back, and then we can't do anything. Nietzsche's disdain, and we'll talk about him another time, but this, he had a disdain for Christ, for Christians, and it helped form his own philosoph- philosophical worldview. He said this, They would have to sing better songs for me to learn to have faith in their Redeemer, and his disciples would have to look more redeemed. That's a, that's a uh, well, I mean, we may say that's crazy, but that's actually a good point. Think about it. We need to look more redeemed than we do. We need to be better at what comes out of our heart than, than we do. Nietzsche was right in that. I mean, and his disciples would have been, what's that say? Would have to look... More, re- no, yeah, that's the last part. Okay. All right. So, anyway, let me, let me wrap up. I've got a couple more points to make here. Apologetics is not talking somebody into the faith, it's, it's more of uh, one of the instruments that God uses to drive his truth into their hearts and minds. Apologetics isn't the cause of salvation, it is about being an instrument that God can use to communicate his truth to others. Acts chapter 16, verse 4. We'll finish up with that. It's on the screen. And they went through the cities, they delivered them the, the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Beliefs are based in truth. Their beliefs are rational. Beliefs are formed by our careful understanding of the, of the facts. And that's going to bring us into the next lesson next week, which is truth, knowledge, and reason, as well as where does faith fit into all of these things. Because we've got to have faith. And like I said to you before, we don't have you need to learn this. You don't have, if you do have a blind faith about Christ, then you do need to be here so we can change your blind faith to an evidential faith. Because all of those proofs that I listed all are evidences for why there is a God. Because that's all we're trying to answer is, is there a God? Yes, there is. We have the proof of cause, proof of creation, proof of design, proof of suffering, Proof of healing or uh, um, suffering and pain and morality and all of that stuff. All of those things prove there is a God because that's the ultimate question. Is there a God or not? If there is a God, then, we, then, then people need to be confronted with that truth. Okay, so um, I'll be glad to take questions. Not tonight, though, but uh, unless you'd like to, okay, I was confusing because you know, if there's a place you need a blank, I'll try to go back and get that, but if you have questions about what we're talking about or anything that you want to over the course of this series, just send me an email, and I will try to get an answer, and I'll answer it at the next class, the next section we're at, okay? All right, well, we got done a little bit faster than I thought, but that's all right. Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank